This is The Guardian. I'm Joe Tovey, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. The Elizabethan era is officially over, marking for some Australians the perfect time to start ramping up campaigns for a republic. But polls don't suggest any surge in public support for the constitutional reform, and the government's response has been tempered, with Prime Minister Anthony Albanese saying it would be inappropriate to discuss a republic during the Queen's period of mourning. There is, however, high levels of support for an Indigenous voice to Parliament, which the Labor government has agreed should take precedence over a debate and a referendum on a republic. So, what does this all mean for the Australian Republican movement? Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of News Mike Tischer about the road to an Australian Republic. It's Friday, the 30th of September. Okay, so we're doing things a little differently this morning. I'm Joe Tovey, Deputy News Editor at The Guardian, and I'll be steering the ship this week while Gabrielle Jackson is away. Good morning, Lenore. Morning. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. So it's long been presumed that the death of Queen Elizabeth would reinvigorate the Republican movement in Australia. Lenore, it's been three weeks since the Queen died. Is that what's happening? Yeah, I think we can all stop wearing black now. And yeah, like Republicans have always said that the movement will revive after the end of the Elizabethan age, which was, you know, a delicate way of putting it. And this week we did see the first signs of it. Anthony Albanese had appointed um, an assistant minister for the Republic, Matt Thistlethwaite, quite challenging to say, even though he has always said that this issue was going to be in their second term. And Thistlethwaite this week was talking about, you know, it was time to get started, that he was starting to uh, have consultations. But I think they do need to tread carefully because, you know, there are divisions in the yes camp about whether a president should be elected or appointed, and that's what sunk the 1999 referendum. So I think the government is starting to cautiously ramp things up and the Australian Republic movement as well is saying they're going to start to ramp things up. They're going to push on, see if they can get membership growth. I think they really do. I think there's a lot of things about the Republic movement that need a bit of a revamp. So we're just seeing the debate start. But given that it's in the government's second term, there's no urgency to it. We know that the referendum on the voice to parliament is going to happen first. And I think the, the Republic campaign has got time to kind of get itself going again. Mike, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges facing the Republican movement going forward from here? Many. There are many. I guess the first obvious one is we don't know if there will be a second term of the Albanese government. Yep, there is that. <laughs> <laughs> then, as Lenore alluded to, there is the huge question of what kind of Republican model they are putting forward, which is a completely legitimate and difficult, thorny problem for the movement to address because 
The model that the Australian Republican movement has proposed at the moment involves the states nominating candidates and the federal parliament nominating some candidates who would then be voted on by the public. There are all kinds of pitfalls there. Candidates could become identified with the states that have proposed them. So we don't want a president who is seen to only represent one state, (laughs) obviously, or favour one state. But also there are still a very large number of people who are genuinely attached to the monarchy and don't want any change and others who are not so sentimentally attached but also don't see a pressing reason to change to some unknown model and perhaps think there are an awful lot more practical, normal governmental issues, cost of living, health, education, all the normal, you know, the climate crisis, all the normal and very challenging things that the government has to address that might be more of a priority. Hmm. Other than a second term for Labor and getting public support, are there any other major challenges ahead? So the other obvious challenge is the one that has beset all referendums to change the constitution is that that bar is very high in the actual vote. You need not only a majority in the whole country, but a majority in a majority of the states, that is four of the six states. So the last referendum failed on all those counts. It didn't win a majority in any of the states. Only in the ACT. in territory. Only in the ACT, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well done, ACT. But that doesn't count, unfortunately. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that in itself is a high bar. Yeah, and I think it's not yet 100% clear, but the government is going to update the nuts and bolts legislation for running referenda. And some people seem to be assuming that it will offer public funding to both the yes and the no campaigns in the voice referendum in the same way as John Howard did in 1999. But that was actually a proactive move of his back then. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if the government doesn't offer public funding to either campaign. They'll update the provisions in the Act that say that we have they have to mail out an essay to everybody and probably do that online and then leave the campaigns to raise their own funding, I think is what will happen. And I think that does give a strong advantage to the Yes campaign because there's such a groundswell of support behind it. And indeed, the polling at the moment shows that if, you know, the Republic question were put to Australians now, it wouldn't get off the ground. How seriously should we take that polling and how concerned, I guess, should the Republican movement be by that? Not too concerned, I don't think, in that it was taken those two polls that have happened recently were taken during the period of mourning for the Queen, which I think uh, Republic polling does bounce around depending on what's happening with the royal family. But also because no one's really made the case for 23 years. Like you have to be well into your 30s before you've actually been alive or cognizant of a proper debate about this issue and anyone really putting the arguments for this issue. So, you know, they haven't really started properly, and I think that's important. I also have a really kind of strong view that I don't think the argument for the monarchy should be based on whether we like the current monarch or not. I think it should be made on its own merits, and that is that this is an anachronistic institution that is irrelevant to us, that the whole idea that by virtue of birth someone is ordained by God to have some sort of, you know, privileged position or position of power, even if it is only symbolic power over us, is, you know, it shouldn't be too hard to make an argument against that, I wouldn't have thought. And I don't think it should be based on whether we like the current royals or not, because then, of course, if more popular royals, you know, come to power, then you've undermined your own case. It's a case that should be made on principle. And I think if the 
Republic campaign makes the right kind of case on principle, it could be successful and popular. But I really hope that they learn the lessons from the marriage equality plebiscite and even from the success of the Teal independence in the last election, and that is that persuasive campaigns work best in the current political climate when they're made at a grassroots level and at a community level, at a persuasive level, that having important people telling you what you should think is probably going to be less successful than having a kind of grassroots campaign that works so well in the marriage equality plebiscite. They're saying that they're learning those sorts of things. I really hope that they do, but I don't think we can judge it yet because they haven't really started. Mm. As you both have mentioned, the Albanese government has prioritised a voice over a republic. They've said enshrining a First Nations voice to parliament in the constitution is their priority for this first term and advancing the Republican cause would be a priority for a potential second term. Why do you think they've chosen to do it this way? I agree with the order that they've chosen to do it in. I think the issue of a voice and Indigenous recognition has to happen first. We have to reconcile ourselves domestically, the descendants of the colonisers and the First Nations people, before we then, in a unified way, can take the step of getting rid of the colonial power as our head of state. I think doing it the other way around would have provoked quite understandable and legitimate and probably fatal criticism from the First Nations community. So I really think this is the right way to do it. And I know Bill Shorten was going to do both together or that was his policy. I think that is impossibly difficult and combining those issues would kind of cruel both arguments. I think taking the step towards domestic reconciliation and recognition and then as a nation that understands who we are saying the king doesn't represent us anymore, us as a group, I think that's the right way to do it. It feels like a kind of natural progression, doesn't it? Also from the point of view of persuasion that if you can successfully persuade people to vote for a voice, then it feels like it might be much more plausible to persuade people to vote for a republic as well. Because the voice is also difficult. It's not as simple as the same-sex marriage plebiscite, which for all its faults was a simple question, at least, do you agree or not? The voice is something that has to be explained to people. It's still details of a proposal have been set out, but it's quite complicated how what it actually involves. So you can see how proponents of the Republic would want to see the, how the voice campaign goes first and learn from that. But equally, you can see if the voice fails, then it really feels like the Republic's dead yeah, in well the that's, water. <laughs> I wanted to ask, in the event that the voice does fail, what could that mean for a Republic and are there risks to this strategy? Mm, absolutely. It makes it really hard. But I think the, the converse, doing it the other way around, would have been impossible. And if you think about it, you know, there are bunch of countries, particularly in the Caribbean, where the Republican movement's really been revived after the Queen's death. And that makes sense to me in that Republicanism there is the direct kind of reckoning of colonialism for them. But for us, the reckoning of colonialism has to happen here first, I think, and then move on to dealing with the Republic. But I do think it's a kind of all or nothing proposition the way we're tackling it. Mm. I think it's so interesting seeing what's happening in other countries. Can we just sort of step back a bit and look at uh, how this debate is playing out elsewhere? It has been quite different, hasn't it, Mike, um, outside Australia? Certainly, and the moves towards republicanism, particularly in the Caribbean countries, have been much more pronounced even since the Queen died. So there are 
14 other realms. Don't you love being a realm? A realm is just great. As well as the UK itself is a realm, meaning countries where the the monarch is the head of state. But it's really in the Caribbean, I think, where the moves have moved much more quickly. So Barbados became a republic last year. Jamaica, uh, Antigua, Belize, Bahamas, they've all announced in one way or another, Antigua also, that they will either have a referendum to change their constitution or intend to do so, or in some way intend to move towards a republic. But obviously the questions there, as Lenore mentioned, there are historical and very immediate questions there that are not the same as the conversations we're having, obviously, particularly about slavery, and then more recently about the Windrush scandal, where descendants of migrants from the Caribbean have been, in some cases, their rights to residence have not been recognised. They've been deported, in some cases detained, and otherwise mistreated, even though they've been in the country for decades. So that is obviously a very contemporary issue that's resonating throughout lots of Caribbean countries as well. So you can see why the, they are kind of having a reckoning with their relationship with the UK in that sense, and the Queen's death has kicked it off in a big way. Mm. Lenore, you would have covered the first Republican debate and referendum. Do you think there are lessons that the media can draw, that we can all draw, uh, for covering both the upcoming voice referendum and a potential future Republican referendum and debate? Uh, yeah, I think it is always to keep an eye on the dangers of false equivalence. You know, it's always easy to pick up on dissenting voices and they deserve to be heard in both of these debates, but to keep it proportionate and to keep an eye on what the majority of people are saying and not to give an oversized say to the loudest, the squeakiest wheels if they aren't representative of large parts of the community. Can I finish things up just by asking for kind of a gut feeling at this point what you both think the likely successes are of each of these constitutional changes in Australia? Do you think the voice can be successful and do you think we'll become a republic in the next decade? I am at the moment cautiously optimistic on the voice. A lot will depend on the coalition's attitude, I think, if they can get the leadership of the coalition on board. I'm sure there'll be some outliers who are definitely going to oppose it all the way down the line. But if they can get the leadership on board, then I think that probably has a reasonable chance of getting up. On the Republic, I'm much less optimistic. I think The Voice has a good chance. There are vocal opponents both on the left and in sections of the Indigenous community and on the right. But I think the way that the campaign is starting is heeding that, those sort of lessons I talked about earlier, the ad that came out this week is really appealing to sort of community sentiment and asking people to have the conversation. And I think there's such a groundswell of support for it in the community and across corporate Australia and, you know, around Australia that if the campaign is handled well, I think it's got a good chance of success. And I don't think you know, we should be scared of having the discussion with the people who have a different view. I mean, that's part of it. That's like the point of a referendum. That's why we do it. I'm more optimistic than Mike about the Republic if the voice succeeds, because I think then people will have started to think about these questions of national identity and why they are important. And it does seem kind of weird if we have had the national discussion about Indigenous recognition and a voice to Parliament, and then we think, oh, yeah, but we'll keep the king. It lays the groundwork and the next logical step 
of becoming a republic does become clearer once you've got through a voice campaign. So I think if we're right about the voice, then I'm more optimistic about a republic. Next, Australia's pesticide problem and football fandoms. Now we come to the stories that we can't get out of our head. Lenore, what was it for you this week? I've been reading closely Anne Davies' investigative series on Australian approach to chemicals in farming and on food and how many of them that we use quite freely are banned in other countries and the arguments for and against that and what the farmers say in terms of why they need them and the potential you know, health impacts of the chemicals. I think it's a really interesting debate and I think she's done it in a very nuanced and detailed and great way. We did run a story about what you can do to your fruit and veggies to make sure they're still okay to eat. I'd hate it to think that we were, you know, turning people off eating fruit and vegetables. The Guardian says eat Mars bars for dinner. (laughs) But it is a really interesting series. I would recommend it. Great. And Mike, what about you? So it's NRL Grand Final Week, which doesn't necessarily always grip me, but our state's editor, Connell Hanna, has written a very true and funny story about his life as a Parramatta Eels fan, including how this apparently mild-mannered, normally extremely calm editor found himself running barefoot down the street after his wife's car as his uh, connection to the the game that got them to the grand final unfolded and he lost his internet connection. Um, Anyway, it's, it's very funny and also very telling about what it's like to be a sports fan, even someone who's not connected to it necessarily day by day. Strongly recommend. Excellent. I'll have to seek it out. All right. Well, thanks very much to you both. Thank you, Lenore. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Daniel Simo. Catch you next week. Bye.